You're listening to Buzzing with Miss B, the coaching podcast, where we believe that every teacher deserves a coach, and every coach does too. I'm Chrissy Beltran, an instructional coach, resource creator, and coffee enthusiast. And I'm your host. Stay tuned for practical tips and honest coaching talk that will help you coach with confidence. Coaches, and welcome to episode 44 of Buzzing with Miss B, the coaching podcast. Thank you so much for being here with me today. This is a special episode. For one, it is the last episode of season one. I know it has been a four, I've actually got 46 episodes of this podcast out in the world, which is crazy to me. I have 44 regular episodes and then two bonus episodes that were created right around the beginning of the coronavirus spike that we knew of anyway, um, in, in March. So I have those episodes as well about, um, you know, kind of taking care of your mental health and about how to use Google resources for teaching online. But aside from that, my, my 42 basic episodes are my, my 44 basic episodes are out in the world and they cover such a wide range of topics from coaching cycles to building relationships and working with uh, needs assessments and you know looking learning about anti-bias education, which was my most recent episode with Kay Valdez, and so many great topics that I hope that if you haven't listened to all of them, that you go back and you use this hiatus that I'm going to take to start from the beginning and listen to everything because I believe there's so much good stuff out there for you. So I am taking a hiatus uh, from, from this episode until February. I launched this podcast in February of 2020, and so I'm going to take a hiatus in December and January and then come back in February, hopefully with lots of energy to deliver a whole season of 44 more great episodes. <laughs> so for now, this episode is a special episode for another reason. Um, this is actually an AMA episode, Ask Me anything. So what I did is I put out a request into the world of coaches. I asked on Instagram, I asked in emails, and I asked in Facebook, the Facebook groups that I, I support. And I said, what do you want to know? And coaches responded with their questions. And I told them it could be about anything. It could be about personal stuff. It could be about professional stuff. It could be about being a mom, about being a coach, about being a teacher, about where I live, whatever they wanted to know. And so I got um, a good chunk of questions. A few of them were duplicates, so they kind of overlapped a little bit. And I'm going to share them with you today, and I'm going to answer them as well. <laughs> and so I'm really excited to do this because this is the first time I've done this sort of episode. So the first question that I got the most often was about virtual coaching. Several people asked about what are some first steps that they could take in virtual coaching? What are some things, that, tools that they could use and things that they need to do to be effective as virtual coaches? And they also asked about coaching cycles and when it was a good time to start those. So those questions I've already pretty much answered and I don't want to re-answer them because I feel like I did a really good job the first time and I don't want to do a bad job the second time. So I want you to go back and if you have that question, listen to episodes 34, 35, 36, and 37, where I actually talk about first steps in instructional coaching. Instructional coaching. We talk about um, tools that you can use. We talked about, I talked to Dr. Stephanie Afanito about virtual coaching cycles. We talked about the do's and don'ts of virtual coaching. And I talked to Nicole Turner from Simply Coaching and Teaching about her virtual coaching work that she's doing right now. So I think those are really uh, a really great source for you if you have questions about virtual coaching. So definitely head back to those episodes 34, 35, 36, and 37 to learn all about virtual coaching. 
So my next question comes from Beth Ann. My question is, she says, when I'm walking around to visit classrooms, how long should I stay? Should I be sitting in the back taking notes or walking around? If I leave a note for the teacher, should it only be a compliment? Should suggestions or wonderings be saved for conversations face-to-face -face so they are not interpreted incorrectly? That's a great question. Um, and of course, as usual, it depends. <laughs> so, okay, let's take this in little parts. When I'm walking around to visit classrooms, how long should I stay? That sort of depends on what your purpose is there. If you're just visiting classrooms, just kind of like checking through the school and seeing how things are going and following up on curriculum and resources and things like that, I would recommend probably staying about 10 minutes if you're doing sort of a classroom sweep and visiting everybody. If it's just kind of your routine visits. However, if you're there as part of a coaching cycle, obviously I think that you should stay longer because you really want to get a frame, like a real true picture of what that lesson looks like. So then that might be closer to 30 minutes, 40 minutes, maybe even an hour. It just kind of depends on on what the purpose is for you being there. Um, I probably wouldn't just pop in to visit a classroom and spend an hour there. I think that's overwhelming and scary and stressful. But if you have let teachers know, hey, I'm gonna be coming by, this is just part of what I do, I just pop in to see how things are going and that way I can figure out what we can work on next together, um, then you could probably do about 10 to 15 minutes is a reasonable amount of time to get sort of a picture of what's going on. Should I be sitting in the back taking notes or walking around? Well, I think that depends. Um, again, you can sit in the back and take notes. I usually did at first. I would sit down, take some notes, get an idea of what the learning target was, observe what the teacher was doing and saying, what students were doing and saying, and then I would walk around and look at what students were actually doing. And I might even ask, depending on the way that your school functions, you have to kind of make sure this is okay with the culture of your school. But I might ask students things like, can you tell me what you're working on? And then just see what they say. And you know, maybe that's relevant information and maybe it's pretty clear, but I still wanna see what the kids think they're doing. I wanna see what kinds of academic language they're using. I want to see if they can explain to me what the teacher has just taught them. Um, so I'm not asking them really complicated questions. I'm just saying, can you tell me about what you're doing? And that kind of gives me some insight into what kids are actually internalizing from that lesson. You can also walk around to observe the classroom environment and the space because that is a part of teaching. And so sometimes we have teachers who are really doing well in one component of teaching, but maybe the classroom space is not really conducive to learning or there's a lot of um, mismanagement of resources so kids can't get to what they need. So being aware of that can be really helpful. And if you're sitting in the back, you might not catch all of that. So I recommend sort of a blend, a little bit of both. The next part of the question says, if I leave a note for the teacher, should it only be a compliment? There are different schools of thought here because many coaches don't even believe in visiting classrooms without it being part of a coaching cycle. So it depends on, again, the culture of your school. If you have built a relationship with teachers and maybe starting off with positive notes is one way to do that, um, then I think that personally you can add a question to get them thinking. And I don't think that's a bad thing. You could say, I wonder what would happen if, or have you ever seen this? Or is this, this is a resource that I've seen before. It might be really helpful and you might like it. 
So you kind of can add, you know, start out with a, a positive sort of feedback structure, but then you can push the envelope a little bit by questioning or challenging something that you saw in the lesson. That's what I used to do. I didn't get um, negative feedback from it. In fact, I actually had a lot of people tell me, oh, I thought it was a really good idea. I hadn't thought about it. Or, oh, I could do something like this. What do you think? And it kind of encouraged people to follow up with me. Whereas if I hadn't done that, sometimes they would just take the note and stick it on the wall and be done. Now, it's great to just leave positive feedback sometimes because everybody needs that. And teachers would literally put them on the wall behind their desk, which is really sweet, <laughs> like, almost like a certificate. Um, but you don't want to fall in the trap of just being a praiser. Because whenever we just always praise everything, then we're seen as evaluative. We're just evaluating in a positive way. And they're afraid to displease people who are evaluating them. So you want to merely have that balance of, of questioning and pondering. We're constantly learning. So I don't think there's any harm in doing that in writing as long as you have built a positive relationship with your teachers. So that's my recommendation. You can add suggestions and wondering if you feel like the teachers will receive them well, if you know them well enough for that. If not, then you can save those for a face-to-face -face meeting if you're having one in response to each of these visits. But I also think it can't hurt to give people the opportunity to think about something before they see you. Because if they're going to see you, you can say, hey, I'd love to talk to you about this whenever we meet. And you can kind of put a little hint there so they can start thinking about that idea. Okay, another question says from Elizabeth says, how do you highlight the value in a coaching cycle when a district doesn't go about coaching in that style? That's a great question because we have all functioned in environments that have very different philosophies from us and that's not always ideal. One recommendation that I have for you is to really start with the research. So if you start by researching coaching cycles and really understanding for yourself what the benefits are, then you can more clearly explain that to whoever it is that you need to convince to let you run coaching cycles. Um, you can start by figuring out who to talk to and you can propose a case study or you can just do it. I sometimes, I mean, I'm a big fan of asking for forgiveness rather than permission if you feel like the situation warrants that. So um, you can just host your own case study and start with a friendly teacher who would like to try this out. And then you can collect your data just like you would in a case study and share that with your administration or with your central office personnel, whoever needs to see it, or with other teachers. And use that first teacher as sort of like a commercial for all the good stuff that can come out of a coaching cycle with you. So you want to start with somebody who is friendly and who is maybe not the most a needy teacher in the grade level and maybe not the teacher in the grade level that everybody goes, oh, well, she's amazing. I could never do that. You want to start with someone who has some solid teaching practices in place and who is interested in trying new stuff. So that's, that's a good place to start from. And then you can branch out from there and start using that as leverage to get into other classrooms. So that's my best advice. Do a case study. Amy says, as a literacy coach and a toddler mom, how do you balance and prioritize reading books to recommend to students or teachers, aka Kidlet, professional reading and personal reading? That's such a good question. And there are times in my life where I feel like I do not have an answer to this question. And then there are times in my life where I do, and it just kind of depends on, on circumstances. You know, I read a really interesting article once about how this idea of balance that we've made is not real, that it's more like seasons. So in some seasons, maybe we have more time for personal reading and in some seasons, maybe we have less time 
And some seasons, maybe we have more time to read kid lit. And in some seasons, maybe we have less. And so we have to kind of be honest with that balancing everything. It's kind of like the minimalists say, you can clean and organize everything, but the bottom line is you have too much stuff. So it doesn't matter how much you organize it. You're always going to have too much stuff. And that's kind of how I feel about balance. We have too much stuff we're trying to squeeze into a day. So it doesn't matter how well we manage our time. We have too much stuff we're trying to put in there. So we have to be realistic with that and patient with ourselves and understand that that's just not always, every day is not going to always look like this perfect balance that we want it to. However, I do have some tips about how you can read more books. Um, I do always have a physical book handy that I'm going to read next and I have my list and that really helps me. So whenever I do have time, I actually can easily get a hold of my next book, but I also read a lot of audiobooks, and I use Audible but I'm going to look into Overdrive because Overdrive is a service that's available through public libraries. And right now, you know, it's, it's, we're still in, you know, COVID Corona 19. And so I, COVID 19. And so I am um, really sad, but our public library is still closed here. Our libraries are closed. So we haven't been to the library since March and I have not checked out a book since March from the library. And I have always been, like over the last couple of years, I really made a point of trying not to buy physical books because it's just, it takes up so much space and we have so much stuff. Um, as you can tell, I have listened to the minimalist podcast, but you could not tell that by looking at my home. So, <laughs> so I have a real problem getting rid of books and I keep going through and getting rid of books and I keep finding more books. So I've been trying not to buy more books. And instead, I really spent a lot of time making sure that I was checking books out from the library and I always had one on hold and I would request them to just pick them up, you know, and swing by and pick them up whenever they were ready. But because that is not available now, I'm going to look into Overdrive for audiobooks through the library because those are free and that is ideal. Um, there's only like one copy of most books per library system, so you may have to wait a while and that's what's happened to me is the ones that I did want to check out, they were all already checked out. But it's a great way to get free books. So check it out, see if your library is signed up with Overdrive and um, that's an awesome way to read more books. I read a ton of audiobooks. My brother tells me that's not a thing. He says, no, you listen to audiobooks. I say, it's a book, I read it. I'm saying I read these books <laughs> and I try to kind of alternate between professional and personal books. Um, lately I've been reading a lot of anti-racist, uh, not really, I mean, I've been reading literature that is, um, helping me think more from different perspectives, but I've been reading anti-racist nonfiction and trying to understand more about this idea. And so I, I have found that I do better with nonfiction when I can listen to it. Because if I am reading it, I tend to zone out after a while. And I do really well with reading fiction, you know, an actual physical fiction book. I love that. It's my favorite thing. And I listen to fiction on audiobooks as well. But I find that if I'm going to read a, a nonfiction book, I do best with it being um, an audiobook. So, you know, it might be good to figure out what is your preference for reading books? What kinds of books do you like to read physically? And what kind of books do you like to read um, through an audio reader? And you can kind of capitalize on that because you can read audiobooks super fast. I don't even go anywhere anymore. <laughs> I work from home and, you know, I have a toddler like you mentioned. So if I am ever in the car, we are not listening to my audiobook. We are listening to 
well, her favorites are the Wiggles and the Beatles. <laughs> and I can get in the occasional um, collection of oldies and a smattering of like 80s music. And also she likes the Trolls World Tour soundtrack. So that's basically what my, you know, my, my musical preference has become. If you ask me what music I listen to now, I couldn't even tell you anymore. My brain is gone. But I do listen to audiobooks whenever I am doing dishes. I listen to them whenever we're taking walks. Um, if she's in the stroller, I listen to an audiobook while we're taking a walk. I listen to them whenever I'm getting ready in the morning. And sometimes I will even bring it into the shower and we have a little shelf. And I've seen some people put it in a Ziploc bag, which is very smart. And I just, I don't do that. I stick it on the shelf and I pray that nothing bad happens, but that's probably really not smart. So <laughs> put it in a Ziploc baggie and you can listen to audiobooks when you're taking a shower. It's great. It's a great way to um, give yourself more time to read than you would normally have because we don't all have time to sit down with a cozy mug of hot chocolate in our, our recliner and read a book. We just don't. It's not the way most of our lives work, especially when you have little children. Um, one other thing is you don't have to read professional books from cover to cover. You think about how we teach kids nonfiction, and we frequently tell them, well, use a table of contents, find out the part that you need to read or that you're interested in reading and read that part. You can do the same thing. So if you don't have time to read cover to cover, choose the element that you think is going to be most helpful to you and read about that and really zoom in on that. I do recommend that. I have read lots of parts of nonfiction books about teaching and coaching, and but I haven't read as many cover to cover because it's just not the way that my life works right now. So those are my recommendations, and I do hope those help you out, Amy. Karen asks, they say relationship building is key to coaching. How do you actually do it? What are some tangible takeaways? How do you approach someone to work with you, assuming it's not mandated? That's a great question. Relationship building is key to coaching, um, and it can be kind of elusive. So I'm not so much going to talk about virtual relationship building right now. I actually created a video specifically about that in the coffee and coaching membership that is um, designed for coaches who are working with teachers in a virtual setting. So it teaches you exactly the things that you can do to build relationships in a virtual setting. But I'm going to focus now on relationship building in person. So one thing that you can do is kind of schedule a regular pop-in with people. They don't need to know you're doing this. <laughs> but every day, you can pop in on a different teacher and just check and see how they're doing. Teachers go through a lot. There are a lot of emotions, and it's always nice for somebody to come in and check and say, hey, how's it going? Are you doing okay? Is there something I can do to help? I mean, if that's something that's available to you to do. And sometimes a lot will come out of these meetings. You will learn a lot about people, teachers as people, and about what's going on in their classrooms and about what their frustrations are, because sometimes we're just, we're just so frustrated with something, but no one is there to help us. If you pop in at the right moment, you might be the person that they confide in, and that can go a long way to building relationships. Another thing that you can do is right at the beginning of the year or at any point that you're starting to really do this work is start to try to learn little bits of information about people and share little bits of information about yourself. And this is really important because we see each other every single day at work, many, many of us do, but do we really know who teachers are as people or do we know who they are as teachers? If you think about what do you know about your teachers as people? you might not know that much about them. So it's important to really, you know, take a step back and think about 
what are some things that I would like to know about my teachers? And then start to try to kind of cultivate that knowledge and pull it out of teachers in a sincere way, you know, learning about their families, learning about their hobbies, learning about where they went to school or different places that they've lived or what they like to do on the weekend. All of those things are, are things that can help you build bridges with things that you know about people. So if you have a, something in common with people, you can use it to build a bridge to that person and really create a relationship that would be supportive of coaching. You can also build in opportunities to talk and to learn about each other during professional development and PLC. So one of the easiest things I've ever done that we used to get to know each other was I created a little, little dice, like a die, like dice. And on each side of it, there were six sides on each side was a different question. And it was just, what do you do to help you help yourself calm down? Um, what do you do for a, to celebrate a special day with your family, things like that. And we would roll the dice and each person would answer one of the questions. And it was just kind of a neat way to learn different kinds of things about people. So building those, those opportunities to talk and to get to know people through your PDs and PLCs. And my last tip kind of addresses the, how do you approach someone to work with you part? Sometimes people don't ask for help, but they do complain. Actually, people complain a lot. <laughs> so if you hear a teacher complaining, I want you to think of that as your open door. That is your invitation to say, wow, that's really challenging. I would love to help you with that. Let's set up a day and time that we can talk about it. Use that to get your foot in the door to whatever reality is going on in that classroom because they're telling you something that's really going on. And maybe they're saying, well, my kids don't do this and my kids don't do that. And that is really frustrating sometimes to hear as a coach, but if we twist it around and hear it as an opportunity, we are more likely to make an impact on that classroom. So listen for those complaints as opportunities and use them to get your foot in the door. Someone else asked me, this is an anonymous question, how do you develop anti-racism in your children? And I am by no means an expert in this, um, but these are some of the things that I have done to try to build this in my own daughter and that I'm going to try to continue to do over time. Um, and I made little notes or four different things that I want to share with you. One of them is to really have dialogue about these topics. And it can seem like we don't know what to say, and that's because we really haven't practiced this enough. We haven't talked about race enough. Many of us were taught not to talk about it, and so it can feel really awkward, and we're worried we're going to say the wrong thing. So I spend a lot of time reading so that I hopefully have the vocabulary and language to talk about race respectfully and purposefully. But with your children, they're going to notice things, and we just don't want to shut that down. When we shut that down, that's really harmful. Um, whenever we tell kids, don't talk about that. Don't, no, no, shh, don't say that. That's rude. And all they've done is comment or observe, then that's not really helping them learn how to talk about race, right? We're telling them just like we were taught to be colorblind, which isn't real. So instead, we want to encourage kids to make observations and notice, and that way we can really see if there are biases developing in them, and we can really kind of work to um, to clarify those and undo those biases because kids are getting input from everywhere all day long, including us. And if we are not aware of what's in there, we cannot help them address it. So we've got to know what's in there. Whenever they talk about skin tone and if they, they have a preference, that's something we need to be aware of, right? If they're saying that they've noticed patterns in the different kinds of skin tones that people have and races and what people might do, which kids start doing around the age of three, we need to know about that. So we have to have dialogue openly with our children about race. 
I also think we need to really be aware of the media our kids are consuming because so many of our kids are watching stuff, whether it's on YouTube or TV or movies, and it might not be sending the messages that we want them to be receiving. And unless we look at it with like an analytical lens, we're not going to notice what messages they're getting. So sometimes things are kind of like the subconscious bias. We want to make sure that we are aware of what's being put into their brains. So really pay attention to those shows and ask yourself who's considered the norm. How are different kinds of people represented in these shows? Because that's something that we want to be aware of for our kids. The same thing can be done with books. We want to show books about, we want to provide books with different kinds of people in them because our kids can't only have literature that looks like themselves. Now, we, we want kids to have mirrors, absolutely, that reflects who they are and that they see themselves in their books, which is so important. But we also want them to know about different kinds of people and we want to know about them in positive ways and not just negative ways. So if all of your books that are about black people are about slavery, are you showing anything that reflects that black people are just human beings who live just like everybody else? So we want to make sure that, that we are reflecting reality and, and positive images in different kinds of books that we show our kids and that it represents different races. And my last tip is toys. Examine your kids' toys and see who is represented there. Um, you know, it's one of the things that people have become really aware of over the last few years are the pink and blue aisles in toy stores, which I honestly, it drives, I, I don't even feel drawn down that pink aisle. It just looks awful to me. <laughs> and so I really try to make a point of not buying all pink things for my daughter because I don't want her to think that that is something that defines who she is. She's a girl, but that doesn't mean she has to like pink or have pink toys. That has nothing to do with anything. That's something we've made up about who she is. So just like that, look at the toys that you were providing with our kids with in terms of race. Do we have different kinds of faces on them? Do they have dolls of different races? Do they have little figures to play with that are different races or are they all the same? Are they all white? Because white is the norm. That is what you usually get. If kids don't have these things to interact with, they don't develop comfort and they, don't, they, they feel like that makes white normal and everything else is not normal. And so we really want to surround them with these things that help them see that everything, everybody is normal. Everybody is a part of our society and we can value our differences. Um, one anonymous, another anonymous question is how do you set boundaries for your time and sanity, especially when you might have a very needy staff? They want answers and they want them right away. The principal admits to creating a monster, but she says that it would be a good idea to create some boundaries for my time. For example, my lunch break may be a bit different each day, but that is my time to unplug, process, and regroup. They also need to know that there are going to be times when I won't get right back to them. Any advice you can give would be helpful. That is such a good question. And I am not good about that either. I have really struggled with that um, because I always feel like everybody needs a response right away. So over the years, I've gotten better. And I can tell you some of the things that I've done that have helped me. One is I dedicate a specific time to respond to email, and then you can set up an autoresponder to let people know when that time is. So if you always respond to emails at about two o'clock in the afternoon, set up an autoresponder for the rest of the day that says you're going to respond to their email at two o'clock in the afternoon. So that way they know you got it and they know you're going to respond and they don't keep bothering you about it. 
if they need to reach you urgently, they could send you a message through some kind of messaging system like Voxer, and you still can determine when you choose to answer that. Um, but you can look up, you can look at Voxer and actually send a voice message, which is kind of a nice way to communicate whenever you can't be around people. Um, or whenever you're on the go. So you can send a voice message and then that way they can, you can respond to it at any time. It's easy to respond to. And again, you can have a set time whenever you respond to those things during the day. I also recommend creating office hours. So during your office hours, you would respond to email. You could respond to phone messages, your Voxer messages. Everything would kind of happen and you would be reachable during that time. And you won't necessarily be reachable the rest of the day. If you explain it to teachers as just like with their students, there are times whenever their students are not going to be able to pop up and ask them a million questions because they are working with another student <laughs> or they are doing a task that requires their complete attention. It wouldn't be good teaching for that teacher to interrupt what they're doing to answer that one question from a different student, right? So it's also not good coaching to interrupt what you're doing, interrupt your, your thought processes all the time and your, your attention and cut your attention in half all the time to respond to the questions that they're asking. So that's what I would recommend doing with that. Set your office hours, set an autoresponder, uh, use Voxer and build the habit and expectation that you absolutely will respond, but it's going to be during a set time. The last question I was asked to talk about is uh, from Shannon. She says, can you talk about your first year as a coach, specific experiences, good and bad lessons learned? I can absolutely do that because my first year as a coach was a very long year in which I had very little idea of what I was doing. Um, with the biggest challenge that I started out that year with, I think, is that my role wasn't really clearly defined. I was introduced as an expert in reading and writing, and that sort of set the tone of the dynamic between the teachers and myself. So that created sort of a she will have all the answers and you don't know what you're doing vibe, right? And I, that was not the intention of the administration at all, but that was the outcome in my opinion. And so I really, my biggest piece of advice is always to define that coaching role clearly in terms of not only what you will do, but why you are doing it. And it's not supposed to be because you're an expert, although we do hope you have a lot of knowledge <laughs> that can be shared with teachers, but it should be because you are a collaborator, right? So let's, I'm going to talk a little bit about that. Um, one of the things that I did with teachers regularly is I would plan with them. So we had PLCs every Tuesday and one week I'd have three grade levels like K24 and the next week I'd have first, third, fifth. And I would have to plan for two weeks with the teachers of reading and writing lessons. And we were supposed to get to social studies as well. That did not happen, the social studies part for the first couple of week, years, because we just, we were not in a place to fit so much into that short time frame. Um, it was really challenging. So one of the teachers would usually plan for social studies and share that with a grade level. And then I could give input. But for the most part, the first couple of years, we really barely made it through reading and a little bit of writing. So... I didn't have a real handle on how to approach planning with teachers during PLC. I didn't, I didn't know how to start it. 
um, it was completely foreign to me because the way that we had planned at my previous school is everybody would bring something to the table and kind of talk through it. And then you walked away with whatever you wanted, whatever you thought was going to work for your kids. Um, I could share my subject area that I would bring materials for was writing so I could share ideas, but no one was required to do them. And we were not required to come out of that planning session with aligned plans. We only honestly didn't even have planning sessions that were supported by our administration except for a few times of, of the year. So to have planning once every two weeks was incredible, but I really had to figure out how to make that time useful and purposeful. So it became something that I was really stressed out and anxious about every week. It was like, oh, it's Tuesday. Oh man, here we go. Because it was really shocking the start whenever we started working together it was really shocking because we were speaking completely different languages when it came to instructional strategies so i remember once saying what could we do for word study and a teacher asked me what do you mean is that spelling i don't know what that is and i was like oh well this is one of the best practices that the district has been training us in for the last few years and the teachers were just completely unfamiliar with the language that our district had been using. So that was a big issue. So I learned a lot about developing a common language. That was huge um, for teaching because if we don't have a common language, it's very hard to plan together. Another point, um, another struggle during PLC was one of the teachers told me last year we were told that we didn't know what we were doing and that we were doing everything wrong. So now why don't you just tell us what to do? And I did not know how to respond to that because I knew that change was expected on the campus and that the school was long overdue to update their practices, but I didn't know how that message had been conveyed to the teachers, so I couldn't really speak to it. And it created a really uncomfortable relationship right there. I'm, and I know that teachers had not been directly told word for word, you don't know what you're doing, you know, for example, but I do know that that's the message they felt like they got. And then I came in and was introduced as the expert. So what kind of a dynamic did that create? Not a great one with certain teachers. Some teachers were like, it's okay, you're here to help, that's great. But some were, were threatened and I can kind of perceive, I can understand why that would be the case. I did work with a few teachers, you know, towards the beginning of the year, but I always felt uncomfortable. And probably because I'd been introduced as an expert, I always felt like I had to do everything right and have all the answers. And you might feel that way even if you haven't been introduced as an expert. You might feel that way even if you were introduced in maybe a more collaborative role. Um, you still might feel like you're supposed to have all the answers. And you can't. And I did not. And so it was really a stressful spot to be in. So even teachers who were asking for help made me uncomfortable because I felt like I might mess up if I modeled in their classrooms. So I learned a lot about defining the role that you plan to serve. So instead of being set up as the expert with the answers, you set yourself up as a partner who can collaborate and help figure out new ways to do what they need to do and try things out and explore strategies. I think that creates a less stressful role for you and it also makes you more open and available to teachers who are not as threatened by that collaborator as they would have been by an expert. One time, so I have a really vivid memory that I'm going to share with you of an experience that did not go so well. <laughs> and it was a huge learning experience for me. And so I'm sure that you will walk away with something good. I've actually talked about it before on this podcast, but I'm going to give you some of the details. Um, I remember once that a teacher asked me to model a lesson and it was a teacher who had a very different classroom management style than I did. And the class to me felt like it was just all over the place and walking in, kids were yelling at each other, supplies were being tossed to each other. 
very few people were listening to the teacher and the teacher was pretty much just yelling at the kids. Um, I couldn't perceive any management system or anything. Everything was just handled by yelling or demeaning. And I could also see that there were certain kids who had earned somehow um, the privilege of being pointed out when no one else was being pointed out. So if all the kids were talking and yelling at each other, maybe two kids would be called out and it was always those same two kids. And there were a lot of issues in that classroom as far as man behavior goes, absolutely. I mean, the kids, um, many kids had struggled with self-control and things like that, but nothing was being done to support the learners that I could see. So whenever this teacher asked me for help, I was really uncomfortable. I, I usually tried to kind of avoid that classroom and any interactions with the teacher because the problem to me was so insurmountable. I didn't even know how to start the dialogue with that teacher. And this is one of the teachers that I did not have a common language with. So I felt like whenever they said that they didn't know what I was talking about, to me, that felt like they didn't want to know. I learned over time that probably was not the case, but it, to me, it felt like I was just being shut down, but I don't think that was their intention. I think they were just overwhelmed and I couldn't see that for what it was because I have not ever felt that same exact way in my life. You know, and as far as my teaching career, I had not been so overwhelmed and had no idea where to start. And I think that's where this teacher was and didn't know how to ask and didn't even know how to identify the struggles that she was having. So it, it was all about the kids, right? It was all about the kids are doing this, the kids are doing that. They don't know how to do this. They don't know how to do that. So everything was very negative and that left me with a very negative taste in my mouth and I did not know how to communicate with this teacher. So the teacher asked me for help and I said I would model a lesson and we met really briefly to quote plan the lesson, but the plan was so short and sketchy that it really wasn't a very, it was very much like, oh, we're going to do this, this, and this. So why don't you just do that instead of, of me? You can do it, Chrissy. And I was like, okay, okay, I can do that. And I asked for the text that they were going to use, but they didn't have it ready yet. So I asked again the following week, the day before that I was supposed to model the lesson and still I didn't receive the text. I didn't get that text until I walked into the classroom and I saw it projected on the screen. And the teacher had read it with the students the previous day, and they told me that they talked about it, but based on what they talked about, I could tell that even the teacher had misinterpreted the text and didn't completely understand it. It was at a very high level. It was not age appropriate for the group of kids that we were working with. So the teacher had misunderstood some of what the text was trying to say and kind of whenever they were sort of explaining it to the students, because the students had no idea what it was about, um, they, they kind of misrepresented what the ideas in the text were. So it was, it was not a good start to my first model lesson in that classroom. And so I was already there. I just struggled through it. I used management techniques that I had used with my own students and I made it through the lesson unscathed, <laughs> but then I hightailed it out of there, which was a huge mistake. So I followed up briefly with the teacher later, but I didn't follow up with her effectively. I, I was very brief in our conversation. I just kind of checked in and was like, how'd it go? What do you think? And the teacher, I could tell, didn't really feel like I'd help them at all. Um, because they didn't understand why I was doing what I was doing. They even told me, well, the kids were behaving better, but it's because you were there. But 
I'd been there in the past and it present in the room and I had seen no improvement in behavior. So I don't think that it didn't, I don't think it actually had anything to do with my presence. I really do think that the management strategies that I was trying were working with them or starting to work. So the teacher didn't realize that I had deliberately made choices about those management strategies. They didn't realize that I selected them carefully and was using them purposefully because I hadn't told them my thought process leading up to the model lesson. I didn't share with them what I was planning on doing to try out a management system with their kids. So they had no idea. So I learned a lot from that experience about implementing coaching cycles and how purposeful pre-conferences and post-conferences need to be in order to actually make an impact on the classroom. Because you can go in and teach the most incredible lesson ever. Not that I did, believe me, it was not. But you can go in and teach this profound lesson and if the teacher doesn't understand why you did what you did, and how you figured it out and why you responded to students in certain ways, it's not going to impact their teaching. They still don't know how to do the things that you did. So I learned a lot about, about being communicative and about being thorough in our planning before a lesson begins to make sure that everybody knows what's going to happen and everybody knows why that's going to happen. Another lesson that I learned about was listening for complaints because it seemed like every single day teachers were complaining about their kids about their kids not being able to do things, about their kids not wanting to do things. And they weren't asking for help with these items. They were just complaining. And so at the time, I tried to turn it into a teachable moment. That is my natural MO. I mean, it really is. And I am sorry to any of my friends who just come to me to vent because I tend to like ask questions and well, what can we do? And try to, I'm more of a problem solver type, which isn't always what people need in the moment, right? So I have to really be thoughtful about not always trying to solve the problem or figure out a solution or contribute to moving forward. It's something that I have to be aware of myself as a human being, but also as a coach. I have to know that about myself. So I tried to turn it into a teachable moment and I would offer suggestions. You know, one thing that might work or something that seems, you know, that seems like it might be helpful or something that kids really struggle with is this, so maybe we should teach this. That did not go over that great. <laughs> it was not. They'd say things like, these kids can't write a complete sentence. And I'd say, oh, you know what could be really good for that is mentor sentences. And then I would introduce the mentor sentence really briefly and share it with them. And they were like, okay. Mm -hmm. And then they would not do anything with that because it was meaningless to them. And that was not the right frame of mind for them to learn something new in that moment. They were not in the right place for that. Um, so instead, I started to learn about how I could turn those complaints into um, opportunities. And so I turned, like these kids can't write a complete sentence. Instead, I'd say, maybe we could figure out something that might work to help the kids. Do you have some time on Monday at 2.45? And that way I could get my foot in the door. I could um, show up at Monday and I could still introduce mentor sentences as a possible idea, but we would choose a coaching support method to get that introduced to the classroom. So we would choose, do you want me to model it? Do you want to co-teach? Do you want to try it out and want me to observe? What is it that we can do? Or do you want me to observe a lesson in grammar and kind of see what I notice so we can solve problems from there? So that was a great, huge lesson for me. Once I learned that about turning complaints into opportunities, it really did change the way that I approach those conversations with teachers. Because before I had been very uncomfortable, teachers would stress me out with their constant complaining and worrying and anxiety and, and frustration about the kids. And I have a knee-jerk reaction whenever people complain about kids 
all the time. Every now and then I get it. We get frustrated. I totally understand. I have done it myself. But whenever that is the answer to everything is these kids can't, these kids won't, that's really, that's not good teaching. That You're not building a relationship with those kids. Something is not right in that classroom. And so my reaction is always to flip it back on the teacher. But that's not always helpful in the moment. They might not be ready to receive that in the moment. So instead, if we can turn it into an opportunity to visit that classroom and create some purposeful, productive planning time together and initiate a coaching cycle, then they might be in the right headspace to learn something new and to try something different. Um, but again, we have to be aware. We don't always have all the answers. So what we try might not work. We have to uh, try it out, see what they think make adjustments, try something different, right? Over time, we may see an improvement or we have to try a different strategy. We have to be kind of open to all of those different possibilities as coaches. And for people like me who like to figure things out, solve problems, check things off of lists, that can be a challenge because that's my natural personality. Um, so I guess another lesson that I learned my first year of coaching is a lot about who I am, which is, is, um, all those things that I just mentioned, plus I like to control possible outcomes and be prepared for possible disasters. So I do a lot of mental planning for, for um, the events that we don't want to pass. My brain is often getting ready for those things. And it's not that I'm afraid of the worst happening. I just feel like if you have a plan, at least if it happens, you're ready. So I think that coaching really kind of put my, me, myself, I put me under sort of a crucible or in a crucible and I could sort of see who I really was at the core because that's who I brought to coaching. So it was very interesting um, in retrospect to be able to see those traits in action and to know that some of those were missteps and some of those were just things that I learned a lot about um, coaching and teaching. And I mean, if you're going to be a coach, you have to have a first year. <laughs> Even if we'd like to skip it and get to like the third year, which is when things start to kind of come together, um, you can't. You got to go through the first year to get to the third year. But I promise things do get better because you figure things out and you develop a relationship with teachers and things start to feel a little bit more natural, which is amazing. When that happens and you can actually look forward to certain elements of your coaching work, that is a beautiful time to be a coach. So those are all the questions that I have today um, for my AMA Ask Me Anything episode. This was episode 44, and it was the last episode of the first season. Please remember that I'm going to be taking a hiatus between now and February, and this is a busy time of year for me and for my family, so this is a good time for us to kind of take a little break from podcasting, but I am going to be putting together some incredible episodes for you over the break so that whenever I come back in February, I have awesome stuff to share with you. I'm so excited about some of the ideas that I have that are going to come out in February and March. So I'm really looking forward to that time. In the meantime, if you are uh, needing support, if you're frustrated, um, check out coffeeandcoachingmembership.com. It may not be open at the time that you check it out, depending on when you listen to this, but um, if you can certainly get yourself on, on a waiting list, and then we can contact you and let you know whenever the membership is open again, so you can get that ongoing support. So that's coffeeandcoachingmembership.com. And until February, go back and listen to all of those old episodes. You can binge listen if you want and happy coaching. Thank you for listening to Buzzing with Miss B, the coaching podcast. Want more coaching ideas? Check me out at buzzingwithmissb.com and on Instagram at buzzingwithmissb. If you love the show, share it with a coach who would love it too, or leave me a review on iTunes. 
It's free and it helps others find this show. Happy coaching. Happy coaching.